I was expecting COVID to end and I was going to go back to my cyber career. So I, you know, there was no long-term strategy. I was taking it, you know, week by week and month by month. And it just got to the point where I was like, you know, this is, this is my life now and let's turn this into something real. You're listening to the Deal Closers podcast brought to you by WebsiteClosers.com, a show about how to build your e-commerce business to be profitable, scalable, and one day even sellable. I'm Isaac Porter, and on the show today, Website Closers' Gwen Sylvester joins me to talk with Adam Spiegel about exiting OwnLoop, a company he founded because he needed a way to make money when his career took a turn for the worse because of the pandemic. You know, these types of episodes where we talk to founders about how they built and sold their companies are some of my favorites. And one thing that really sticks out to me is how they don't necessarily have any amazing skills in e-commerce and they don't go to school to learn about business or digital marketing. They simply practice FITFO. They figure it the blank out. They start from scratch, they go to YouTube University, and they learn. And they keep learning until they get it right. That's what happened with Adam Spiegel, who's also one of these people who had the entrepreneurial itch from a very young age. My mother was a pharmaceutical rep, and at the time she used to get a ton of promotional materials, pens, post-its, letter openers, and me and one of my close friends used to set up a wagon in our community and try to sell them to, to cars passing by. Adam went to the University of Michigan for college and got his career started in cybersecurity. But when the pandemic hit, budgets for what some companies felt were non-essential things started tightening up significantly. People were scared for their jobs. Budgets were getting cut left and right. And I was, you know, kind of left without anything to do. Uh, So I, I literally just started Googling ways to make money online. Came across dropshipping. This was, you know, summer 2020. So kind of in the in the heat of the pandemic. And I just started teaching myself, you know, watching YouTube videos, reading books. I took a course on copywriting and really just immersed myself into the e-com world and tried to teach myself everything I possibly could. And, you know, just, just tried to figure things out. So interesting to me because we've had a lot of these episodes where we talk to founders who have successfully ex- exited their companies. and. One of the common themes that I've seen over the last couple of years doing this is is that almost everybody is self-taught in this field. And so many people um, have kind of gone through exactly the process that you've talked about where they've, you know, they've gone to college. Some of them have gone to college, some of them haven't gone to college, but they've just immersed themselves in learning about e-com through YouTube and, you know, just content that's just out online and then some paid classes uh, but there's really no way to, that, that I'm aware of. There's no formal way to get an education to be an e-commerce entrepreneur. You kind of have to figure it out on yourself on your own. And there's just so much trial and error that goes along with that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And uh, I don't think the formal education system has has changed much post internet. You know, wide adoption of the internet. It's so easy to learn now, basically for free, especially with YouTube. You absolutely do not need a college degree to go into e-com. So interesting, right? Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. So the company you founded was called OwnLoop. 
Uh, you started it, it sounds like in 2020. Yep, September 2020. During the pandemic. And then just tell us about like how, the idea, what was the concept, what, did, what does OwnLoop do? How did you come up with it? Sure. So I tried a few things before OwnLoop. I was doing a lot of learning on dropshipping and you know whether to start a very niche brand and a specific you know for a specific product or a wider catalog of products so i tried a few different things that didn't work all focused around um, driving traffic through facebook ads i just through trial and error uh, landed on selling apple watch accessories i've always been an apple fanatic I was the guy that was waking up at 4 a.m. to wait in line for the new iPhone, you know, before they started the pre-order system. Yeah. So I knew how passionate people were about Apple products and the learning curve was very short for me to get up to speed on those types of products. The perceived value of them is very high relative to their cost of goods. Mm. So I, I just decided to give it a shot. I I launched a a few different types of Apple Watch bands and the one that I least expected to do well kind of popped off right away and we were off to the races. What was that product? What does it what does it look like? So it, it's the it's the third party version of what Apple calls the silicone solo loop. So it's just one piece of silicone. It has no buckles or clasps and you just slide it onto your wrist like a bracelet there's different sizes and it's just basically a stretchy silicone band super interesting so i i take it you didn't you didn't have any pre-existing knowledge about kind of the accessory uh components for apple watches you just you kind of figured it out as you were going into this process of starting own loop and then you tested out a couple different 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 varieties how many how many different products did you test out to to find out that the you know, the own loop silicone single loop band was going to be the winner. So I, I had two other higher end bands um, listed for sale and I was trying to run traffic through Facebook ads. One was a leather band and one was a stainless steel band. Both were at a higher price point and I ended up throwing what ended up being our best seller onto the website as it was intended to be an upsell and mm-hmm. no one ended up buying the the higher price bands. Everyone was obsessed with with the silicone bands. So were you advertising the silicone bands or you were advertising the, the, the higher price point bands and then people purchased the silicone bands when they got to the site? Yeah, that's exactly right. We, we had no, we were running no traffic directly to the silicone bands. The product page was not built out at all. It was really just an upsell. Um, people were clicking through based on the ads we were running for the higher the higher ticket bands and then skipping right over them and going and buying the upsell by itself. So once, once we saw that we focused all our attention on the silicone bands and dropped everything else. Okay. So you ultimately did then run traffic to the silicone bands. You didn't oh, keep yeah. the strategy of. Uh, absolutely. Of yeah. We doubled other. down on, on those bands and, and they ended up, I think over the lifetime of the business, it ended up being like 80% of our sales were, were from that one product. Nice. So interesting. So the, yeah. the whole strategy was built, ended up being built around the, that product and, and similar products. What other type of kind of startup cost did you have? Did you have to pay for any development of that product or was it an existing product that you rebranded? You know, I assume you had to buy some initial inventory and kind of front the marketing costs. Like what was your, 
like how, how much did you kind of have to invest in the business to kind of get it up and running and cash flow positive? Sure. So I remember when when I opened up the business bank account, I deposited five thousand dollars into it as an initial investment. I don't think yep. I ended up using even close to all of it. I I started out drop shipping um, for you know listeners who don't know what that is. It's a it's a business model where you don't buy any inventory up front. You drive sales, and as as customers place orders, I then place those orders directly with the supplier, and the supplier ships the products directly to my customers. So you're not paying for any inventory up front, which is one of the biggest startup costs typically for econ businesses. So it was really some software overhead and marketing. Uh, so it's the startup costs were very low if if you're able to dropship, you know, which we were. And we did that. We ended up dropshipping for about six to eight months before we placed a a bulk order, you know, through a manufacturer, got it fully branded, and you know, really dialed in on on the branding aspect of it. Okay, smart. So you you kind of figured out the path of least resistance from a capital perspective. Start started dropshipping, tested your products, figured out what what worked, and then once you built momentum and started generating some cash flow you branded brought in inventory and then and this throughout this whole time were you selling exclusively on your own website yeah selling exclusively on our own website through shopify and we were we were cash flow positive um, from the first month on so we we i was just basically putting money away um, and eventually use that money to buy inventory so yeah. I, I I didn't end up investing any more after that initial five k that I put in. Well done, man. I appreciate it. So it's, I, it's, I think it's so hard to do. There's for everybody who's successful at that. There's a you know there's a dozen people who tried and weren't. So you know, great great job of putting the pieces together and kind of figuring out how to unlock that puzzle. I appreciate it. Yeah, I was just taking it day by day. I was expecting COVID to end. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting, you know, you and everybody else in the world. I was expecting <laughs> COVID to end and I was going to go back to my cyber career. So I, you know, there was no long-term strategy. I was taking it, you know, week by week and month by month. And it just got to the point where I was like, you know, this is, this is my life now and <laughs> let's turn this into something real. Yeah. So, um, Maybe this is a good good point to kind of bring in Gwen into the conversation here. You know, how did you guys get introduced? And and Adam, when did you realize that you had something that potentially could be sellable? Yeah, so I, I had a how Gwen and I met was I, we have a one of Gwen's former colleagues is my close friend. They used to work together for one of the big Amazon aggregators. Um, so just just by way of having that, you know, my ear to the fire in terms of buying and selling of e-com businesses, I always knew that it was a thing, you know, that I could build something valuable and that there's a market for it. Um, we, we scaled up pretty quickly. We were doing, we were doing like six figures a month in revenue by month eight or nine. So it was not long before I realized that, you know, this, this was a real thing and I should pay attention to, to what needs to be done to keep, keep the value in the business. Yeah. And uh, Adam, in, in all uh, truth, in our first meeting, 
things in the business weren't at their highest when we first met, right? Um, you had kind of gone through some pitfalls when we yeah. first met. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there? And and then I can talk a little bit about the strategy we had uh, thinking about selling the business. Yeah. So I, you know, in terms of my mindset going into it, I I didn't expect this to be a new career for me or or something that, you know, initially something that was going to be a full-time commitment for a number of years. I, I really saw it as a COVID side project. Um, so instead of building out a team and really turning it into a business early on, I started kind of haphazardly outsourcing different different pieces of the business, you know, brought on some contractors to do customer service, brought on a bunch of agencies to run Facebook ads, run TikTok ads, uh, do email marketing. Um, and it got to the point where I was coordinating too many, <laughs> too many agencies and contractors at the same time. Um, our overhead like went through the roof. Um, and I kind of had a come to Jesus moment where I had to dial things back, um, retake control and figure out what needed to be done to kind of level the ship. Um, and that's, that was around the time when, when I started talking to Gwen about, uh, selling. Yeah. And I, uh, I wanted you to talk about that, Adam, <laughs> not to relive painful memories, but, uh, <laughs> you, you were fantastic at writing that ship right as soon as we talked. So, you know, the business had seen, seen some decline. And I know when we first talked, you know, I, you know, we talked about how it might be more difficult to sell the business. Um, and you knew exactly what had to happen in the business to get it going the right direction again. Uh, and you implemented those things right away. And we immediately saw uh, the business start to uh, to climb again and, and really do well. So um, kudos to you for that. Um, I think that's that's why we ultimately got it sold. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I think once once I had that kind of inflection point, I, I knew what needed to be done to get things on the right track again. And I, I think we ended up growing month over month for four or five months up until up until we closed the deal. So Adam, you had a very specific strategy. You only sold direct to consumer on your website throughout the lifetime of the company. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose that strategy and, and avoided Amazon, which I know many potential buyers asked you about as, as we were talking to them. You know, I was getting advice from different people um, along the way. Um, one of the people that I leaned on for advice was uh, my friend who worked for the Amazon aggregator and he was very anti Amazon um, for these types of products and, you know, talked about how competitive it was on Amazon. Um, lots of different sellers trying to steal your buy box and it it sounded like one i don't think i had the bandwidth to kind of you know i was teaching i was teaching myself everything so i i didn't necessarily have the bandwidth to start learning another full platform and marketplace um but just doing re uh, the other thing was doing research into selling on amazon it's a total it's a total different animal when you're selling direct through your own website. You can really lean in on brand and leverage the power of your brand to charge higher prices and curate the customer experience from end to end. You don't really have the same 
power to do that and the same flexibility on Amazon. You, you know, the you don't you don't have a beautiful website to to help sell the product. Most people don't scroll down to the the short area where you can kind of build out some imagery and website copy. Most people just look at the photos and the short description. And the you know, similar products are being sold on Amazon for a fraction of the price that I was selling them for. It's it's just a different it's a different animal. Absolutely. Yeah. And Mark kudos to you. I mean, I think just having that super focused vision um really led to your uh success. You know, so many people try and do everything all at once and you know, you were incredibly focused, learn Facebook's ads and that's what drove your success. Yeah, Adam, that was I was going to ask you that too. Did did you ever expand outside of Facebook for paid traffic? Did you were you running Google Ads or was your was your primary focus on on Facebook ads the, the entire time? Yeah, we tested most platforms. We tested uh, TikTok, Snapchat, Google, a little bit of SEO, but Facebook was far and beyond uh, the best for us and drove eighty percent. 80% of website traffic, I'd say. Hmm. I think the, the market that we were selling to was, um, for the mo- I think about 80% of our customers through like 18 months into the business uh, was women 35 to 55. And that audience, I think, does the best on Facebook. Yeah. And it's that a big was, audience. Yeah. It's a good audience to sell to. Um, they're big buyers, and you know when Facebook finds an audience that that works for you, they tend to continue to try to get similar types of buyers. So I think that was just the initial audience that we had really good success with, and then Facebook kind of inherently doubled down on it, and we just kept driving traffic to to similar audiences. So if you started in 2020, then you, you went through the iOS 14 to 15 upgrade and kind of the, the, the issues that that created for attribution on Facebook. Um, how did you kind of work through that? Yeah, that was a massive, massive, massive issue. 100% of our customers were iOS users because you need an iPhone to have an <laughs> totally. Apple Watch. Yeah. Oh, man, I haven't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It, it was... It was dark for <laughs> for a moment in time um attribution was like overnight almost impossible for us you had all these software startups starting to come into play saying that they could fix it you know and they had the golden ticket we start we tested out a bunch of them nothing worked we went through two or three different agencies to try to figure out you know if anyone knew what we can do and I think Facebook was just woefully ill-prepared for that to happen. Yeah. And, oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. And and they started to get better over time. We ended mm-hmm. up going with a, a software platform, an attribution platform that ended up working really well. Who was it? A triple well. Okay. Yeah. But it yeah. it took it took like six or eight months for us to to figure out that challenge, and it it has never been the same since it's just infinitely harder to target on Facebook than it was pre iOS 14. For we, sure. Pre iOS 14 we could literally you know target the, an Apple Watch interest on Facebook and it would just show it to everyone who has an Apple Watch. 
and you just you just can't do that anymore. So you said something that was really interesting there. You talked about testing out a bunch of different softwares um, and agencies. And I think what's interesting to me in that is that it sounded like you went through them in pretty quick succession because the timeline timeline we're talking about here is fairly truncated to begin with. So I think that's just a great practice in general to, to, you know, test kind of, you know, fail fast, iterate and change. How did you think about that when you were testing? So you're in this point in time, right? The, the algorithm changes, the world changes. You can't, you can't target your clients that are your customers that you were, you were targeting effectively before. And now you're testing these softwares. Like how much time did you give each software to determine that it was or was not working? And then how did you know then to change and find another one and find another one? Triple whale, triple whale now I think is probably the market leader in this space. Um, so, you know, it seems like you came to the, the conclusion of probably the most effective software that I'm aware of. So the question is, how long did it take you to determine the other ones weren't working and how confident were you in making those changes? Because there's also expenses when you're testing these things out, right? You're incurring costs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from a software perspective, uh, we didn't give it much time at all. You know, a couple weeks, you could kind of get a, a quick sense, is this going to work? From an agency perspective, a little bit longer. You know, if I'm working with, with a new agency or a new contractor who's running ads, maybe a month to six weeks, give them a, a little time to, you know, try to figure things out. But if someone knows, you know, if someone runs Facebook ads for a living, it shouldn't take them more than a few weeks to understand, you know, kind of the lay of the land, especially because I, I always had um, control over creative development. So it wasn't like I had to wait for anyone to really understand the selling points of the product or create content. I, I was handling all of that anyways. Um, so we ended up, I totally agree with your point of, about failing quickly. Uh, I think that's, that's the only way that, that you're going to learn and, and grow quickly. Uh, the, other, the other point I would mention is it was at this point where we really started to focus on lifetime value. And kind of realizing that customer acquisition costs are going up kind of exponentially. Uh, and it seems that they'll just continue to to head in that direction. And the importance of launching new products to sell to your existing customer base, really squeezing as much juice as possible out of the customers you've already acquired. And also leveraging other forms of marketing to help with that so email marketing uh, sms you know things like that where it doesn't cost much and the roi is massive and and throughout the i guess that your startup period were you collecting all the data about your your customers so you you'd built an email list you you kind of knew who your clients had been up until that point before the uh ios update yeah, we were we were doing list building from the very start. Um, so I, I always knew the importance of of having a list. It's I think it's important to kind of minimize to the extent possible your reliance on third party platforms. It we luckily it never happened to us, but I've heard countless stories of ad accounts getting banned on Facebook. You know, at at no fault of the advertiser, just an algorithmic mistake 
and you know having to shut down for two weeks. So I, I knew the importance of of having a, a list, building a list. Um, so you you always had that to fall back on. Um, but it was it took a while to really monetize it to you know its fullest extent. When did you actually start thinking about selling the company? Was there a moment or a trigger that you said now's the right time? Yeah, I think it just got to the point where, like I said at the beginning, I, I had started this as a side project and it had turned into you know, a full-time two and a half year endeavor. And I was ready to take what I had learned and all the skills I had acquired and work on something new and exciting. Uh, I didn't, I didn't see this brand as, um, kind of the end all be all or what I wanted to spend the next few years working on. Um, and I was, I think I was also just a bit burnt out from kind of jumping head start into this and really not, not taking a break for a number of years. Uh, so it, you know, I, I think the, it was just an inflection point and I, I was ready to move on to, to other things. Yeah. I knew that as soon as I met you, that, you were you were ready to move on to something new. This was this is not a situation of like, this is my baby and I you know want to cherish it the rest of my life. You were you were ready to move on. <laughs> yeah, I never had a crazy emotional attachment to it or anything like that. I always saw it as a, a revenue stream. Yeah, uh, which I I think is a good way to to look at things. You, you know, you, you want to have some attachment to it to kind of nourish it in the way that it needs to be nourished. But I think looking at it objectively for what it is, which, which is, you know, a business and a revenue stream. And, you know, there comes a time when it makes sense to kind of move on to, to something new and yeah. exciting. I think you had a smart relationship to the, to the company. So I was looking back at our timeline. I think we worked together sort of start to finish for about eight, eight months can you describe what the process was like for you? Was it the longest eight months of, of your life? What were the biggest obstacles? <laughs> um, I think I was naive going into the selling process. I think you'd attest to that. I was like, you know, let's get this done in two months and move on. Yeah, it was The whole thing was a, a huge learning experience for me. Um, it, it was a long eight months for sure. I know we, we went through a few different buyers you know, a lot of negotiations on LOIs that ended up falling through. And it it probably took, you know, five months till we found the, the right buyer that we ended up uh, closing the deal with. I don't think I, I thought about the importance of finding a good buyer as opposed to just any buyer early on. Um, so kudos to you for kind of leaning into that and, and making sure that the, the buyer was a good one because you end up working really close with the buyer. And I, I love who I ended up selling the business to, and we have a great relationship, you know, to this day, we're still, we're still in touch. That's great to hear. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it is well, probably Isaac can probably agree with this, but it is one of the hardest things to convince a seller of that we are not just here to find you a buyer or even necessarily the highest bidding buyer, but the best buyer who A, can actually close and B, obviously is going to get you the best best deal possible. But um, lots of people can offer you a lot of money and, and not actually close a deal. 
Yeah, hundred percent. And you also, you know, a lot of the times there's some sort of earnout structure, you know, or some sort of incentive for the business to do well after you close. So you you definitely don't want a situation where you close and then something happens and they need to shut down the business or it goes into rapid decline. Um, so I, I think making sure, you know, that not only do you work well with the potential buyer, but that you're also confident that, you know, they have the skills to execute after Absolutely. close. Yeah. Super important. The, I think almost any transaction there's, you know, at least a three month transition period and, you know, sometimes up to a year and, and sometimes sellers retain equity and stay involved indefinitely with, with the businesses that they've sold a majority of. Yeah. That, that relationship and the, and the skill set for the person that you're selling the company to becomes really important. Um, yeah, absolutely. And to your point, Adam, if you've got, if you've got any type of a contingent payment structure where you're depending on them to run the business in order to kind of get the full valuation, then it's, then it's really important that they can do it, that they can run the business successfully. And sometimes Gwen, going back to your point, what we see is that it's not always the absolute highest offer. That's the best offer. Part of our job is to help give the sellers that we're working with all the information that we have, all the information about the buyers and kind of pull that information out of potential buyers so that our sellers can make a really informed decision. For sure. Yeah, I, I would not hesitate to recommend, you know, Gwen and website closures in general. You guys were awesome. And I I had actually worked with another um, another company for a short period of time beforehand. So I, I saw the other side of what a, a bad broker looks like. You know, I, I appreciate all the work that you guys do on your end. Thanks, Adam. What do you think were the biggest obstacles that you encountered? Like what were the hardest parts to get through in the transaction and maybe what were, you know, what were, what were you surprised by? I think just coming to just agreeing on the terms of the, of the deal, you know, what reps and warranties are you willing to give of, you know, I think, I think agreeing on, on the overall comp structure is, is fairly straightforward, but then talking out, talking through potential earnouts, you know, what, what the indemnification timeline looks like, all the kind of finer legal points of the transaction that you don't really think about going into it. It took a long, a really long time to, to agree on. And you're constantly going through this risk formula in your head you know, in terms of, you know, what, what am I willing to live with? You know, and what am I comfortable you know, claiming to to make sure that you're protected from a legal standpoint. You know, should something come to pass that you know you didn't expect or you know didn't realize, you want to make sure you have someone in your corner, whether it's you know an, an attorney that's done this, you know, that works with econ businesses or some sort of legal advisor that can really educate you on the points of the deal and make sure that you're you're factoring you're factoring the risk and reward yeah in the right way i think this deal was uh on the surface pretty straightforward economically um i think the whole process 
uh, is the the term the devil's in the details is like perfectly sums it up. We spent a lot of time going through the minute details of uh, the purchase agreement. Um, and Adam was incredibly calm, cool and collected the entire time. Uh, but it was it was a lot of detail to get through. And, uh, you know, I think we ended up with a with a great deal. Um, but yeah, we I think we were both surprised how how long the negotiation process uh, went on pretty much nothing that had any large economic uh, value to the deal itself. Right, Adam? <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. And the longer that it takes, the, the more, the more issues kind of creep in, you know, when you're a month in or, or, you know, six weeks in now you need to order more inventory. You know, you don't want to invest more inventory invest in more inventory if you're not going to get it out of the deal. So I was talking through that, you know, who's going to fund, who's going to fund this interim inventory purchase, some kind of random things like that, that, that kind of creep into play as you're going through the the negotiation process. So one of the things I always find interesting is that most sellers that I talk to at the beginning anticipate that the hardest part of the process is going to be finding a buyer. And in fact, what, what I see is the hardest part of the process is getting from the point when a buyer makes an offer to buy the company to closing. And so all the stuff that you just talked about, negotiating um, the APA and reps and warranties, that's all after the LOI is signed. Uh, and so I think it's really important to have a good team kind of in your corner with a, with a good attorney a good transaction intermediary like Gwen who can advise you on all these details and help you get from the point when the buyer says, Hey, I want to buy your company and you agree to the high level terms to the point when you're actually getting paid because that's where, that's where the rubber really meets the road. And that's really where the deal gets the fine points of the deal get put together. Um, and then your point about time is also really, really good Adam, because the, I think it's, it's, it's hard to anticipate what's going to come up for the business during that period of time. And we've seen all sorts of, you know, you were fortunate to, to have your business was during that time when you were under contract, your business was performing well, but it certainly happens where we go under contract and a business doesn't perform well, which introduces a whole nother layer of complexity. Some of those deals fall out of contract and other ones, you know, we need to adjust the structure and change. Uh, but it can be, that can really get uh, dicey for transactions. So I'm glad you did not have that issue. Um, but if you're thinking about your entire experience kind of from start to finish and you're uh, from the perspective of another founder who's thinking about going through this process, what would be some advice you would give someone to to think about or to do that you didn't necessarily anticipate it, anticipate when you went into the to the process yourself? Process in terms of uh, selling or getting started? Selling process. Yeah, the selling, the selling process. There's going to be a lot of information requests. Make sure you are extremely organized. Um, make a lot of people don't have their their financials in good order. You know, they're just kind of randomly categorizing things in QuickBooks. Um, you really have to make sure that your financials are in order. They're accurate. It's really easy to see the story that they tell. Um, and, and then in terms of, you know, other, other documentation, you want to make sure that 
whatever questions the the buyer has, it's really easy for you to answer the question and and you can provide documentation that you know tells a cohesive story and you know helps them understand you know what what they're buying and how the business is doing you know, even things like you know making sure that you have wire receipts that match up with your inventory purchases you know things where where they can clearly see your costs and and just the overall story of of the last 12 months of the business and i i think also just just making sure you know just being just being patient and you know letting letting the intermediary or the broker you know do what they need to do on on their end to to line everything up for you is you know good good advice i think great advice you made another point early on that i thought was really interesting that i want to just come back to a little bit you said that you weren't emotionally attached to the process. And I think that's probably easier said than done, right? Because even though this wasn't, this wasn't quote unquote your baby, right? You started this up and it, it grew and it became something meaningful and sellable. Um, a lot of founders are in the position where it really is their baby. It's something that they really are super passionate about. And so when you go through the sales process, it's very easy to get to let your emotions guide your actions especially when you're negotiating details like legal documents and, you know, reps and warranties. And, you know, what if the worst case scenario for this business happens, then who's liable for that? You have to go through those conversations in a sale process. Um, But I think it's great advice to just remove yourself from the emotional part of it and try to really think about it from a business transactional perspective. Deals often fail because sellers get emotional about that exact point in the negotiation process. And you can see, having gone through it, you could see how you could become emotional there because you're talking about all these unlikely scenarios that are really bad and you're, and you're trying to prevent them or trying to, you know, each party's trying to make sure they're not going to be liable for like a worst case outcome. And so it can be, it can be really tricky to, to maneuver that process without getting emotionally attached. But I think it's great advice to just, Try at least try to take a step back from that emotional impact of of finishing out those negotiations. And if you're committed to selling the company, get yourself to the closing table and and close the transaction. Because I've had so many times where a seller has told me they were going to back out of a deal, you know, got mad at a buyer, and you know, we talked about it and kind of worked them through it, and they closed. And then you know, six months or twelve months later, they they've I've gotten in touch with them again just to see how things are going. And they said, I'm so glad that you talked me into doing this because it ended up being a really good outcome for them. And after they've got removed from, you know, that emotional part of finishing out the negotiation and they've looked at kind of the financial impact and what they've been able to do and how they've been able to invest that money, maybe start another company. And, and they've been, it's been really good. So, um, well, I think sometimes, it can feel like someone's attacking your integrity, right? Like that's, that's especially on those reps and warranties, like, you know, our eyeballs can read through those really fast. The first time you look through an APA, but then you start negotiating things and you're like, well, I would, I would never do that. And the buyers, you know, making up all these scenarios. Well, what if you did this? And what if you did that? And it, it can get really emotional. Like 
I'm not a bad person. I wouldn't do those things. Um, but Adam, you, you were, and then you start to think, well, wait, if you're thinking I'm going to do those things, are you trying to trap me? Are you doing something exactly. bad? There can be this whole, it can get, it can get really, um, it, it can feel really personal when it's not. And yeah. I think when, you know, for, for brokers like Gwen and I, we've been through a bunch of transactions. We know that that happens on every deal. There or some iteration of those discussions happen on every deal, right. but I think that's a great point, Gwen. Yeah, it, it can yeah. be, but you were, you were, you were great through the whole process. Very, very patient. I appreciate it. Yeah. The only, the only other couple of things I'd add to that are, uh, I think building trust with the buyer is super important. You know, you're, it's kind of like dating. You're, you're meeting someone for the first time. You're trying to build a relationship with them, trying to build trust. And it's, I think it's super important by, by the end of you know our transaction, we didn't even end up using escrow. We had just built up the trust to, you know, just complete the transaction. I ended up going down to, to close with them in their, in their offices. And it was, it was easy as can be, you know, after all the negotiations. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's also important to ask when you're getting started, asking the buyer why they're interested in buying your business, then you can kind of put yourself in their shoes mm-hmm. and, you know, understand that they're, they're not, you know, adopting your child. They're hiring your child to go out and make more dollars for them. Um, or what you know, whatever their objective of the business is, maybe they're folding it into a complementary business, you know, to scale that way. Maybe they're just trying to grow it organically. Uh, but I think under, really understanding why they're buying it will will help you put put yourself in their shoes and you know talk talk through things rationally. So, Adam, what are you working on now that you've sold the business? Yeah, so I'm. Um, I'm working on scaling up um, some new brands, um, doing the using the skills that I've learned through building this brand and you know bootstrapping it through exiting from it. And I also started a marketing firm called Ecom Related uh, to help other seven and eight figure brand owners scale profitably with paid marketing. Um, so if if you wanna if there's anyone listening that wants to talk e-com, just chat about e-com in general or needs help scaling their business, uh, you can check us out at ecomrelated.com. Great. Awesome. Ecomrelated.com. And is that that's the best way to get in touch with you? Yep. Ecomrelated.com or you can email me at adam at ecomrelated.com. Awesome. Congrats, Adam. That sounds really exciting. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that was Adam Spiegel, who you can now find at ecomrelated.com. And if you're looking to learn more about OwnLoop or buy a band for your Apple Watch, visit ownloop.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Deal Closers podcast brought to you by websiteclosers.com. If you like the show, be sure to rate us, write a review, press the follow button, and share it with your network. And of course, if you're looking for help selling your e-commerce business, be sure to visit WebsiteClosers.com. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Isaac Porter. Follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and TikTok, and we'll see you next time on the Deal Closers podcast.